Well, let my, uh, me add my own good morning to that from Will uh, a little earlier. We uh, are taking a break from the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we got to a kind of high point last week in chapter 8, and we'll pick it up again. But I wanted to start our term uh, somewhere else in 1 Timothy. Can we pray together? Lord God, we have sung, Still be my vision, O ruler of all. And we pray that the vision of Jesus, uh, crucified, raised, and returning, uh, would be what spurs us on to live lives of love for him. Amen. And I hope it will become clear during uh, this time, right now, uh, what 1 Timothy may hold for us. Uh, Apparently, claims about lack of sleep uh, account for a quarter of the employees who give reasons for coming in late. Uh, Can I just, on those grounds, uh, commend Will personally? Um, Will's had almost no sleep uh, last night. That such is the wonder of being a, a newish father. Uh, and still had time, this was the bit that impressed me, to read Psalm 92, as he told us earlier. Apparently he was reading it while sort of spooning porridge in uh, with the <laughs> other hand. I, I do just think sometimes we take for granted that uh, what happens up here just sort of happens. And it's important sometimes to say thank God for the ways that all of us, not just those of us up front, but all of us are kind of just handling life in the middle of getting here. So thank you, Will. Um, But claims of lack of sleep account for a quarter of the employees who give reasons for coming in late, which he didn't do. But my favorite of the excuses I read was this one. I was dreaming about a cup match and it went into overtime. (laughs) We sometimes uh, need help to face our own responsibilities. A question with which to start then. Who has the responsibility for your life before God? Let's turn to 1 Timothy. If you've closed the Bibles, please open them again on page 1191. Excuse me. It's always true that the beginning of one of Paul's letters tells us a great deal about where he's going to be going. Here, his first, well, his second word after his own name is that he is an apostle. It means one who is sent. What he's about then, even just in that second word, we know what he is about is not his own, uh, not out of his own head, nor is he unclear about it, but he has been sent on a mission by the anointed king Jesus. Christ, let's remember, isn't, uh, a, ty- uh, isn't a, um, a surname. It's a title. It means the Messiah, the anointed king of Israel. This is Paul's claim to authority. And so we know that his authority is over Timothy. It's over the church. And through him, uh, Timothy's authority is over the church because Paul was sent That is going to come into question in the letter. That's why he goes to the trouble of putting it at the very beginning. That's who I am. I know you're going to question it later on, so let me just remind you from the beginning. And that sending, we're told, comes by a command. The command came from God our Saviour and Christ Jesus our hope. Well, there's a surprise for us. 
How come Jesus isn't the saviour? Actually, Paul very rarely calls him that. Only twice outside uh, these letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus called the pastoral epistles. Mostly in Paul, it's a title for God. And it's taken over from the Old Testament, where God's right hand again and again is bared, his holy arm is bared, the Old Testament says, to save and rescue his people. And it comes, this title, late in Paul's own writings. The emperor of Rome called himself saviour. Perhaps there was a a reluctance on Paul's part to use a title at the beginning that was used for the Roman emperor. But then it became clear to Paul, it seems, that that's exactly the title to use, precisely because it claims God is the saviour and the emperor is not. God has the faithful character all the way through from the Old Testament of being that saviour. It's what he does, it's what he has done. In this verse, Jesus Christ gets to be our hope. And again, that's common in these letters. What does that mean? It's a looking forward, not a vague, um, I, I, I hope that I might win the lottery. Now, it's, it's an unlikely hope because I don't play the lottery. But I might hope. It's not that kind of hope. This is a certainty of something that is looked forward to. Even as God, our Saviour, is something of a looking back, Jesus, our hope, is looking forward. Christ will save his people. Christ will complete our salvation. Eternal life will be ours. But there's that present dimension. Because he is now, because of that hope to come, that's what he is now. That's the kind of the, the, the line that is thrown into the future. But it makes a difference now. And so the bases are covered of past and future. Paul is sent and sent authoritatively by the one who's already worked as saviour and who will complete salvation in time to come. There's no part of time that is not covered by that salvation. Not of Paul's time, not of ours. No part of the life of a believer, you or me, allows him or her to face the kind of downcastness that thinks salvation was somewhere else. It is past and it is future and it's now. Well, I want to rush on a bit, so let's go to verse 3. It tells us the geography. Paul has gone into northern Greece, Macedonia, and Timothy, his friend and protege, is in Ephesus. That's on the west coast of Turkey. There is false teaching going on in Ephesus, and Timothy has to be urged to combat it. Well, what is the false teaching? We get various clues. Here, we can tell that it's mostly got a kind of Jewish flavor to it. Verse 7 tells us that there are These teachers want to teach the law, which we assume means the law of Moses. And you you know, don't you, all those uh, begats in the Old Testament? You know, A begat B, who begat C, who begat D, and what have you? Well, those are the genealogies. So when we read that these uh, people are talking myths and genealogies, it sounds like there are false teachers who deny Paul's authority and insist they are the real authorities because they can prove that line going back by the genealogy to Zephaniah the 15th, or whatever it may be. They are teaching myths 
Uh, and, and we guess, because of what we know was going on at the time, it's probably about the angels. It looks like what they were doing is they were binding people back to the Jewish law. And we know from later on in the, the letter, they're behaving in a quarrelsome, greedy, rebellious way. It's not a godly teaching, but rather, according to verse 6, meaningless talk. Well, that's the false teaching. What does the true teaching look like? Well, we can understand it from the structure here. In verse 3, Paul uh, issues a command. Notice, Timothy is to command the false teachers to turn back and teach the truth. Then in verse 5, we're told that the goal of this command is love. We need to pay attention to both parts of the command. Perhaps because I've just come from teaching part of Friday's prayer meeting on vision. Uh, I want Trinity always to be a teaching church. And I know how that can sound. In fact, without uh, consulting Will, Will said something very similar at the prayer meeting. A teaching church must be a place of dry, abstract, thin cleverness. No. Because a good church teaching truth will see that the truth is leading to love in the practice of the same kind of self-sacrifice that took Jesus himself to the cross as the one mediator, as Paul calls him, between God and man. Command certain men not to teach false doctrine then the, a, the goal of this command is love. To drive that home today, it's going to control so much else of what happens in this series on 1 Timothy. And that's what these three little definitions that we get are about in verse 5. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, I think we're going to face a problem with uh, this letter, and I might as well be upfront about it before we start. I don't suppose that between bites of porridge uh, this morning, either Timothy or Will was getting excited in in what was undoubtedly a, a warm and wonderful prayer time over the porridge. I don't suppose they were getting excited about a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. They sound dull. They don't sound dull to you. They sound dull to me. Good, I'm glad that they don't, but I just think, I I just don't wake up in the morning and say, give me a pure heart, a good conscience. A good conscience. I mean, that to me belongs in another world. It belongs in a kind of, oh, I'd expect to be reading an 18th century novel. But it doesn't sound dull at all to Paul. That's what matters. It doesn't matter if it sounds a little dry to me. For Paul, and for the the kind of language world in which he's writing, they imply action. They imply activity and they overlap. See, the heart is the place of decision-making for the whole person. So the pure heart, remember blessed are the pure in heart? The pure heart belongs to someone who, with her heart purified by accepting the truth, is able to act in the church and the world... Uh, from out of that purity. 
Her motives are pure in her acting. Or conscience. Conscience was well known in the ancient world, and he is borrowing language that is less used, less common, perhaps, for us. And it, it's, the, it's the, the faculty that sits inside us between knowing what is right and then going on to do what is right. It's the kind of gatekeeper. Yes, you know what is right, but the good conscience is the thing that enables you to go on to do what is right. So a good conscience is a conscience that is made good by the truth and then approves us as we enter on acting rightly out of love. And then sincere faith. Literally, it means an unhypocritical faith. It's easy to proclaim a faith, but hypocrisy is apparent when our actions prove us traitor to the faith we declare. A sincere faith is a faith where what is believed and trusted flows in all sincerity towards loving action. Now, we might put it differently, but nothing has really changed between Paul and us. Good teaching of the truth should still lead to love of the neighbor expressed in action. Now, what I want to do with that is to drive home, if I can, something about the whole letter, and then consider where we ourselves might be in danger. Would you please turn over a couple of pages to chapter 6 and verse 11? We won't do this very much, we don't need to do this very much, but perhaps at the start of the letter, and perhaps at the end, it's going to be helpful to look at what the overall is about. Verse 11, but you, man of God, flee all this and pursue, that's going to be the big word, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. I want to pay attention to that verb, pursue. Paul writes his first letter to Timothy to set before him a pattern of the Christian life that is about pursuit. There's no sort of jogging along for the man or woman who's new in Christ. We're not invited to be like the rest of the world, except when those dramatic moments may happen. We must not suffer under the delusion that there's a kind of long-term place of rest in which we get acted upon rather than acting. Paul knows that the Christian life is a striving and a pursuing. It's not a jogging along. And it seems to me vital to emphasize that pursuit, not as being just over the whole letter, but over these uh, words back now in chapter one. We teach, and we need teaching churches, not because there is always something new to say, there isn't, but because of my heart and yours. The human heart is always inclined to wander off, as these false teachers have done. In verse 8, the human heart will always settle down to a flat normality that's far from the dynamic of God by working by his spirit to capture and live in salvation that is past and to come. Teaching 
will always mean bringing individuals and churches back to the kind of plumb lines of the faith, the clear certainties of what is true, because we forget and wander. It's not that the truth needs a, a, a new revealing, but it's because our hearts wander off and settle down to think about irrelevances. True teaching gets us back to the truth so that we get out there again and pursue the life of love. We need to identify the shape of true teaching precisely because the false teaching of these verses is no longer around. Do you know, I haven't heard a good debate about genealogies for a long time. So does that mean, therefore, that we we can kind of check off verses 1 to 7 here and say, okay, that's not our problem, we're we're okay, we can go on to verse 8. No, it doesn't mean that. That's why I've spent so long on true teaching. The point for today may be that all teaching is false, that does not lead us to active pursuit of godliness ourselves. And that disturbs me, because it does make me question our teaching here. And I mean the whole structure of teaching, from Sunday groups as we've prayed, through Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, to small groups. And I wonder whether we've accidentally taught a myth. Over against the false teaching that was developed over centuries, the Protestant church in the Reformation was right to insist, salvation comes by grace. I cannot earn or work for what God gives me as gift in salvation. But have we accidentally conveyed a message that once we accept the death of Christ on the cross for our sins, that's that. There's no more to say. We've accepted the offered gift and the rest of life is simply lived in that acceptance. Here's my salvation, one for you. Oh, thank you very much. I'm very grateful. Here's a song. The death of Christ on the cross grants us free salvation, that's true. But have we downplayed the equal truth that that free gift will cost us everything we've got? It is true when we say, once saved, always saved. But have we ended up with a myth of once saved, always settled? Have we downplayed the active following of Jesus as a pursuit of godliness? Have we become those who only look back and stopped looking forward? When our neighbours look at our lives, can they see what it is that we are pursuing? We are, as the song says, uh, to ask God to lead us out of darkness, to walk and not to sit as children of light. I think 1 Timothy might be a timely reminder for us. It's not that by the end of it, we'll be back with the ancient error, all frantically trying to earn what is actually a gift. Of course, it's not that. It is a gift that we are put in the right with God, and that gift comes from him in the first place. No, rather we might return to the sense of personal responsibility that no one else can pursue godliness for us. Our godliness is achieved by our pursuing it. There are no excuses. Who is responsible for me pursuing good godliness? I am. Who is responsible for you pursuing godliness? You are. 
And so my question to myself this morning is whether we've accidentally conveyed a myth. You are a sinner. Come to Jesus and that will be that. Oh, and it would be nice if you came to church. My prayer is that these mornings with Timothy will teach truly. And the test of a teaching church must be how we pursue, by a purity of heart and emotive, a love that changes lives in the world around. And just as an illustration, let's go back to that second word in our reading today. Paul knew he was sent from God and what he was to do out of love. Each one of us should have an answer to the question, what am I sent from God to do in this world out of God's love for it? It it would be my dream, I mention it hesitantly, it would be my dream though, that there'd be a line of people coming for prayer at the end of our services in 1 Timothy, saying, I don't know, I'm I'm not an apostle, but what am I? What am I sent to do? What does it mean for me to pursue godliness? Because, truth to tell, I've settled. Not very long ago, I conducted a wedding for a friend. Uh, And it was a friend who's... uh, whose life was occasionally a little chaotic. Um, And I could tell from the reaction of uh, the next generation back up, as it were, that they were really pleased he was settling down. So I told him in the sermon that the last thing I wanted him to do was to settle down. Please, God, let us not say to ourselves, once saved, always settled. Let's say, once saved, always pursuing. It's easy to say, but let me pray at home with a prayer of unsettlement and invite you to lead, to test it, as to whether it's true for you as an individual. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our hope. You are my hope. And here am I this morning at the start of what may feel like a new church year. Teach me truly through your people and give me grace not to settle, but to pursue you, to follow you as your disciple in the ways of love. At your cross, you sacrificed yourself for the world May I live in sacrifice of myself so that the world might be different. Amen.